1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like lemon, badges and partridges. Or peat,
2: meat and heat, sheet, fleet and street. (laughs) I love the idea of of doing a history of street, not the town uh, near Bath. Uh, This is the history of everyday life, Sam. Think of it. Like a a historical Google Maps burrowing down into the sort of minutiae of everyday life on the streets. However, as always, we digress because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of humiliation is in fact all about families, schools, Charles Dickens, the British Empire, medieval punishment, the Arab Spring, head shaving, World War II, the Irish War of Independence, corporal punishment, and much, much more. Or that the history of balconies, and this is one of my favorites uh, during lockdown, is all about propaganda and politics, the assassination of Martin Luther King, eavesdropping on the royal family. It's about Churchill, Hitler, Mussolini, the Globe Theatre, And The Lord's Room, popular misconceptions about Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, of course it is. And it's about the Italian spirit of community during lockdown and the global pandemic in which we find ourselves this very day.
1: I really enjoyed the balconies one as well. It was it was really good, wasn't it?
2: It was very good. I feel I feel I missed I've missed out not having a balcony. (laughs) You have a balcony of sorts, don't you? I have two.
1: Mm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I suppose, strictly speaking, my daughter has one and I have one, but there we go. Uh, (laughs) Excellent. The man not sitting opposite me because we are uh, still not happy sitting together in a cramped recording area. Let's just say that if history was a playful minnow pootling around (laughs) in the ocean, have you got that vision, James? I have. Then this man would be the rows of teeth in the mouth of the great historical research shark. (laughs) Ready to tear flesh from bone in the pursuit of knowledge. What do you think of that?
3: I like it.
2: I like it. It's the famous. Uh, it's me. It's James Daybell. Sorry, I just, it's James.
1: I just stopped. I was so smart and pleased with myself. I had some tea. Yes. it is. Uh, uh, yes, it is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth <laughs> University. It is the one and only Professor James Daybell. Hello, James.
2: Hello, Sam. And our our minds are on exactly the same wavelength because I have something very similar for you. Because the man not sitting opposite me, because we haven't dared to get into that cramped recording studio across town. Well, let's just say if history were an ocean and he were an elasma branch fish um, swimming meaningfully around the deep among the archives, then he would be the great white shark. Of this historical ocean, yes, it's the famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis.
1: Thank you very much for that. Um, yep. So sharks—it's something we've talked about in a semi-joking way for some time, and I'm delighted that we're finally doing the history
2: of sharks. I was slightly—I was slightly surprised we were doing it, <laughs> uh, having the last two weeks. I've—I've I've really got my teeth into two massive monographs. <laughs> that have given real intellectual heft to my reading and then i was um and then i thought sharks oh where do i begin and but actually it was brilliant and sharks can take you off in all sorts of directions.
1: So, yes, they can take you off in all sorts of unexpected directions. And because of that, it's a, it's a perfect subject for histories of the unexpected because you don't know where you're going to begin and you've got absolutely no idea where you're going to end up, which is the beauty of it.
2: Um, so what about... Where where do you begin with a brainstorm of sharks, Sam? Where do you begin?
1: Um, well, I, I sat down and I thought about it in terms of geography to begin with because... Apart from basking sharks, you get the odd one drifting around in the southwest. There aren't um, significant sharks in the UK waters. So I thought about uh, the Pacific Islands. I thought about Hawaii. Um, and it's very clear quite quickly that they have a long-running, established um, relationship with sharks. You've got, um, there's a Fijian warrior god, Hawaiian folk tales talk about sharks. Um, also, it's interesting, there's, i found some... in ancient greece as well but the point is is that if you're going to be writing about sharks um you you need to be one way of doing it is to look at the the histories of areas where the sharks are around and um you find all sorts of of fantastic culturally influenced influenced things there so um that was one thought and then uh, because i spend so much of my life in china recently i thought about shark fin soup I thought, uh, I, thought, I, I thought
2: about shark fin soup as well. Um, Brilliant.
1: And very uh, uh, just very briefly, the point about this is that it has an interesting history. So the popularity of shark's fin soup changes over time. It rises in the Song dynasty. If you don't know your Chinese history, that's kind of the equivalent of our Normans. It's like the 11th century. But um, then becomes very popular during the Ming dynasty. Um, so 14th to 17th century, it's kind of Tudors and Stuarts time for us. Um, and then the Qing Dynasty from the 1700s onwards, um, so around Georgian's time for us, and and up through the Victorians, um, that's when it became in its most high demand. And um, it's really interesting because it's one of these Chinese things that becomes popular because it requires an elaborate preparation, and it's also, I think, the sort of the the distinctive piece of the animal which which resonated so much with. Um, with with those Chinese who were who wanted to eat it. So it goes along with things like eating bear's paw or, or camel's hump or elephant's trunk or even bird's nest. So shark's fin is one of those. Um, so the point is, you can look at it in terms of that and how its popularity raised uh, rose up through time and has now drifted away again. It's become much less popular since about 2013, 2014. So uh, food was another thought, James.
2: Excellent. It's quite barbaric, uh, shark fin soup. Apparently about 10 million sharks... Uh, are killed each year and just have their fins severed off and they're left to sort of die in the water. No, that's brilliant. I I too sat down and produced a taxonomy of sharks. So I think there are all sorts of ways that we can think about sharks. There is, of course, the natural history of the shark. So its evolution, its characteristics. Related to this, there is the discovery of the history of sharks and the study of the natural history of sharks and and you can trace that over time. There's an awareness of or discovery of sharks and understanding them from the ancient world through the Renaissance to the present. There's the way in which societies have treated and hunted them, things associated with sharks, and this is where your shark fin soup fits in, but also shark's teeth. Um, There's also danger and sharks, history of shark attacks, shark networks, shark spotters, shark nets, all these sort of things to sort of um, prevent being eaten by sharks. And I know, I know that there aren't sharks uh, around uh, the southwest uh, where we live, other than the odd basking shark. But in my mind, there are. And so ever (laughs) since Jaws, um, ever since watching Jaws as a young kid, I find it very hard uh, to swim way out uh, into the water. There's also aquariums. So there's there's actually um capturing sharks and putting them uh, in aquariums so that people can can see them can enjoy them and there's a sort of politics about that i must admit when i had a when i had a conference one year uh, i hosted a conference dinner at the wonderful plymouth aquarium and you can set have tables set up in front of either the great big tank that they've got there or for a sort of smaller more intimate dinner party uh, you can be in front of this shark tank, uh, which I must admit, as you're chomping through your tuna, uh, seeing a shark uh, swim by. Uh, it's not. It, it's it's rather an unsettling thing. There's also cultural meanings of sharks, and uh, we mentioned um, a cultural understanding and representation of sharks associated with fear, uh, and and the film Jaws, you know, uh, fits in, slots into their metaphorical meanings of the shark, and and. For somebody to be described as a as a white shark, as a as a as a um, as a you know business person, vicious, ruthless. Think of the American version of Dragons Den, which is the Shark Tank TV show. Um, and when I was a student, uh, we people used to shark uh, each other, uh, and I remember, uh, which was basically a, a sort of form of flirtation, and it often happened at bops. Uh bops seem to be a very old-fashioned thing.
1: <laughs> How old um, are you,
2: James? <laughs> no, no, no. Bops are still it's a very Oxbridge phenomenon. So Bops are it's something that is held in the college uh bar or college JCR, and think of it as a mixture between uh, uh a sort of house party and uh and uh, sort of sweaty uh, sweaty dance. <laughs> right. Um but sharking is is the sort of is is moving around a room uh uh trying to chat people up i think okay i think i never did it myself uh but i hear i hear it as a as a cultural commentator
1: good but i mean all all of these things have have fascinating histories particularly interested in you said you're you're as far as you're concerned the seas around the southwest are full of sharks and that's <laughs> i'd love to have done more on um the changing role of sharks in in public imagination in that and that's Really interesting. I'm going to say a couple of things about that. About that later on, but um, I think that's got a fascinating history. Um, obviously, uh, history, I, I...
2: history of beating a scaredy cat. Yeah,
1: yeah, we should be scaredy. <laughs> cats. Um, the uh... A lot of it is linked with with the growth of maritime trade and, and globalisation, essentially, because it's all to do with humans taking to the sea. So the more that humans take to the sea, the more they have a contact with sharks. So yeah. it is very much a history that's linked with trade and exploration. In fact, you can't really understand it unless you look at the history of trade, exploration and war and the reasons why people are at sea. And um, it is also interesting. It begins with fascination and how that turns to fear. Um, the... One key aspect I'm going to start by talking about is the the link between the history of sharks and swimming and leisure. So on the one hand, you've got trade mm. and exploration, this big global thing. But I just wanted to uh, make it more a uh, sort of local. And I found this fact here. Um, in the early 20th century, trips to the shore became a national pastime. This is in America. And in 1916, four people were killed by sharks on the New Jersey shore within a span of two weeks. And soon sharks had become synonymous with fear and panic around uh, that area of the eastern United States. So I decided to do a little research into this and to find out what I could about these these people. And I came across the excellent Brooklyn Museum Quarterly, James, from October 1916, which excellent. I'm quite, quite pleased the fact that I managed to find this. It's really, really interesting. So what's happening is that there are more people being attacked by sharks um, off the coast of New Jersey, the Brooklyn Museum gets involved. And what they want to do is obtain specimens of these sharks. Um, They go out to Long Island. They want to get specimens of the sharks for their walls, for their fish gallery. And they get a Mr Edwin Thorne of Babylon. He lives in Babylon, a great place to live. And um, he wrote an account of what was going on. Few persons apparently realise the frequency with which sharks occur in parts of our northern waters during the summer months. For the past 15 years, I have harpooned sharks in the Great South Bay between Lindenhurst and Great River, New York. And during that time, I have probably seen from my boat at least 2,500 sharks and have killed approximately 400. As I was frequently asked by my friends how many I saw and how many I captured, I began in 1911 to keep accurate records. During the past seven years, there have been seen from my boat about 1,123 sharks, of which 146 have been killed. Of these 146, 140 of them were the brown shark. In the past season, he's talking about 1916, my man on the lookout at the masthead saw 82 sharks during one forenoon, and I counted 42 from the deck at the same time. They were, of course, unusually plentiful on this particular day, as though I believe that 200 during one entire day is a low estimate of the number seen on occasions before I began to keep an accurate record... And then they go go on a hunt. Basically, what happens is that the Brooklyn Museum gets in touch with this local shark hunter, the Mr Edwin Thorne from Babylon, and they take them out. So this is like a museum curator. They take him out to go shark hunting, and there's a, a wonderful little description of what happens. We'd gone scarcely two miles from the dock before word came from the masthead that sharks were in sight. Looking in the direction indicated, one could see the dark dorsal fins as they slowly cut the surface along the edge of a sandbar. Sharks were about in numbers. Within a few moments, twelve were sighted, and excitement ran high. Orders went back and forth in subdued shouts. As Mr Thorne took his position on the bowsprit, the man aloft would indicate the course with a wave of his hand as the shark leisurely glided from side to side. Now every movement of the fish could be plainly seen in the shallow water. The harpooner steadied himself and at the favourable instance drove the iron deep into the shark's body. With a rush, the stricken creature sped away, carrying out a yard after yard of rope, the end of which was fastened to a tub, which was finally thrown overboard. For a few short rushes, the tub was dragged quite beneath the surface, but the fish soon tired and the bobbing tub marked its location. The tender was cast off from the sloop, but the tub was picked up. The line hauled in until a second harpoon could be planted in the shark's back. Then the bloody work began. One man hauled on both lines in the midst of spray from the shark's lashing tail, while another administered repeated thrusts with a lance until the hunt was at an end.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: It's amazing description. Really, really... Very dramatic. Fasc- very very dramatic. dramatic. So I, I think this, the point is what we can get from this history. I wanted to talk about it. So here what you've got is a, it's a first-hand account from 1916 and that, of course, helps us understand fishing practices. It also helps us understand the changing relationship between humans and the sea, about the chap being proud that he'd managed to kill all of those hundreds of sharks. And also the idea of fish stocks changing over time. And I'd be very surprised if you went to those waters of Long Island um, now in the autumn and found so many sharks. So the sea itself is changing over time. And the entire article itself, of course, is evidence of museum practices and how they changed over time. And it actually goes on to describe, once they got their specimens, how they then um, turned them into artefacts which could be viewed by the public. So the art of reproducing fishes in permanent museums is also an important part of this. So there we are, that was my description. I just wanted to explain how many different ways you could use that to help understand the human relationship with sharks.
2: That was astonishingly good, Sam. I love it. Love it. So rounded. Love it. All of that from uh, a 1916 observation. So um I want now to move us back in time. And um, I got my teeth into an article by one Jose I Castro. Um, and it's titled Historical Knowledge of Sharks, Ancient Science, Earliest American Encounters and American Science, Fisheries and Utilisation. So it, it basically... Traces our knowledge of sharks all the way back to the ancient Greeks, follows them through roman writers um, we 've then got uh, a period called the Dark ages as he as he terms it here, um, and then we move into um, the Renaissance period where we have the production of an increasing number of works that are um, that deal with uh, different um, Biological classifications and large fish are there um, represented, and we have these elaborate um, we have these elaborate drawings of them. So our knowledge during the sixteenth and seventeenth century is becoming much more increased, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But he also looks at the archaeological evidence. You know, so you and this this I find fascinating. If you have a look in the in the middens of certain tribes in America. Um, you can see uh, the remains of sharks, shark bones, shark teeth and that kind of thing. So you can actually see evidence of this. But what's what's extraordinary is the range of sources that is brought to bear on this. So archaeological evidence, there's written manuscript evidence, uh, we've got printed evidence, we've also got material culture. So there's some really interesting analysis of mosaics and pottery and paintings to show the depiction of sharks. and But to start with, um, he says the first uh, sort of um, understanding of sharks in Western civilization can be traced to Aristotle, and Aristotle in his work Historia Animalium. Um, and Aristotle seems to have quite a sort of, you know, what, what feels like a very sort of modern uh, sense uh, of 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 sharks, and I wonder whether some of that is in the the English translation, but he he talks about the 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 evidence for nurseries of sharks, so the areas where the young find food and safety in their early life and he He describes the the selachia come in from the high seas and out of the deep towards land and produce their young there. This is for the sake of the warmth and because they're concerned for the safety. Of their young. And these ideas of, of Aristotle um, are then taken up by Roman writers of natural history, such as Alien and, and Pliny. Um, they basically compile information, so they take this information on board, uh, That refer to these as holy fish, um, and, and also uh, term them as dogfish. Um, but in actual fact, there's very little new material that is that is um, that is added, very little new information that is added during this period. But um, Pliny the Elder, uh, who lived between, or flourished between AD uh, 23 and 79, refers to holy fish, an interaction between divers and sharks. And he writes, The number of dogfish, in other words sharks, specially swarming round sponges beset the men that dive for them with grave danger. Diverse have fierce fights with the dogfish. These attack their loins and heels and all the white parts of the body. The one safety lies in going for them and frightening them by taking the offensive. For a dogfish is as much afraid of a man as a man is of it. And so they are on equal terms. We then move into the what he terms the Dark Ages, and you can tell that this is a scientist uh, writing here, or, or or somebody who's not a specially trained historian, because it is an example of extraordinarily bad history. Um, <laughs> because what he says, he tries to explain why there aren't as many, um, why there doesn't seem to be in the dark, dark Ages. So, in other words, the 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 medieval period while we see in you know certain manuscripts um there are illustrations of what might be like shark horse like creatures or dragon like creatures um very few um very few uh depictions depictions of sharks and his argument here um is that it's because contact with the sea seems to cease and that and i quote medieval men fished mainly in rivers and there were no freshwater sharks in Europe. Medieval rivers were relatively unpolluted and teemed with fish. Man did not need to travel to the ocean to t- to obtain fish, which I think is um, highly fanciful. Um, and I, I, you know, the idea that people who live by the sea uh, wouldn't be out on the sea. I don't think that... You're, I mean, you're the maritime expert, but I don't think... I don't get this sense that the... Um, that the the Middle Ages were a landlocked uh, <laughs> a landlocked world. No. Um, nonetheless, um, that aside, I found this article really interesting. What's fascinating um, is what happens in the Renaissance. We've got a series of figures, Pierre Bellon, uh, Ippolito Salviani and, and Guillaume Rondelet, uh, who are uh, writers concerned with um, natural history, and what we have is the production here of some of the most sort of comprehensive encyclopedic works, which include sharks. Bellon's work, for example, includes includes sharks, and we have some wonderful um, in, we have some wonderful uh, depictions here. Uh, Salviani's um, 1554 uh, work has an engraving of a, of a shark uh, in it. Uh, and then uh, there are some genu- genuinely, really scary sharks uh, during this period. Really scary, sort of. Uh, Steno's 1668 uh, drawing of a head of a white shark is almost like a imagine what a, a dinosaur yeah. uh, would be like. These are sharks um, of the
1: imagination, aren't they? Rather than
2: they're sharks of the, they're sharks of the imagination. Yeah. Um, and Conrad Gesner's 1560 uh, 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 depiction of the the Xiphius, uh, is a sort of bizarre um sort of um dragon like fish uh with a with a fin uh, that is being eaten uh by something that looks like a sort of porcupine backed fish with big saber teeth so I think you know there's a whole range of 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 written work there, but also the archaeological work is really interesting um, and i think been a, there's been a big project in Italy, a collection of scholars who basically went back 2,000 years looking for all the evidence of Western interaction with sharks. And one of the things that they came up with was a 2nd century uh, BCE mosaic from Pompeii, from a, from a house in Pompeii, uh, and what appears to be a beautiful colour, um, with all sorts of sea creatures on it, the octopi, all sorts of fish, and what look like um, a couple of sharks in there. Um, there's another. Um, there's another fourth century mosaic from Aquilia in Italy, uh, which shows a, 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 a ray and 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 what look like sort of shark-like figures uh, and fishing fishing boats there. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence um, from the um, from the sort of archaeological world that I think people have looked at so we we have these early encounters but it's 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 only over a sort of a much longer period that we get this sort of more detailed anatomical study of sharks where you start you know cutting them open dissecting them and actually looking what their insides are
1: I think um uh, well, well I I love this idea of drawings of sharks kind of not actually being accurate drawings of sharks so what you've got is a uh, a, a drawing of shark from the imagination and the, the the whole history of the shark existing in the human imagination as you said you're worried about the seas the seas around dartmouth being full of great white sharks or whatever um
2: that's well, quite... it's only time sam it's only time <laughs> it with is. global warming
1: yeah is there one particular beach you're worried about is it dawlish or or, Exmouth or something? Uh
2: it's just water to be honest <laughs> it doesn't it, you know it's water anywhere it okay. could be a river as well uh sharks could be in a river it's it's not a rational thing No,
1: no it's good though I, I like it um so it's, it's worth thinking about how that applies in different parts of the world as well um so what you need to do to, to look at that is to try and find accounts of. Uh, attacks. So go back in to, going back to my 1916 one in Long Island, I found the original uh, the accounts of what was going on there. Um, on the sultry afternoon of July the 12th, 1916, the tried rose in Matawan Creek just inside Sandy Hook as it had risen on innumerable July afternoons in the past. Some boys were swimming there as undisturbed generations of had done before them. One of them was killed. A man who tried to recover him was attacked while standing in shallow water, the flesh of his thigh being torn away so that he died of the injury. And immediately afterwards, further down the creek, a boy had his leg bitten so badly as to entail the likelihood of amputation all in one tide. So you can look at those descriptions. And actually, the person who was writing that article then looked at the history of attacks around Long Island. He found one in 1805, the oldest one he found of an 11 foot hammerhead shark, which was taken. Um, And then uh, another one of 1870, which I thought was interesting. So they're actually interviewing residents around Long Island in 1916 who are remembering attacks in the 1870s. So one way of finding accounts and proof of what was going on is by interviewing people. And the other one is um, it's got its own kind of grisly history. And this is people catching sharks and opening them up and finding evidence of humans inside the sharks. Uh, here we, this is a great one. Um Jonathan Couch, so he published this book called "The History of Fishes in the British Islands" in 1868. One of one of the things he noted was that an entire man in armor was discovered in one belly of a great white shark. Um, I love that. I'd like to find out a little bit more about that. And,
2: was he um, alive? You'd imagine <laughs> you'd imagine know. that would give the shark terrible indigestion. Do you know
1: what? What I really like about it is that. So this guy's in armour on a boat, I presume, and then had the misfortune of falling in. And the one thing you don't want to be wearing is armour when you fall in. And then he's eaten by a shark um, somehow. It, in, and the shark manages to get through the armour. You'd think that a bod- <laughs> suit of armour would protect you
2: from shark teeth. Well, and also like just being ingested whole. Just, you know, just how Physically, how difficult that is. Maybe for it was a, a very tiny man,
1: but it was also. It was in 1868. What are people doing wearing armor in 1868? So maybe this is like he's 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 written down an account of something that that might have happened in 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 the 1400s. I don't know. Yes. As like as an account survived. Is this some poor person fighting the Wars of the Roses, where you might rationally expect them to be wearing armor? um and then it is eaten by a shark who manages to get past the armor anyway it's absolutely fantastic there are other examples of um people finding things in sharks tummies here's one june 1807 the sydney gazette um they find a human hand in a shark's stomach i like this point about it being sydney and being australia right so bear with me here um there's always been a link between Australia and sharks. This goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning, thinking about it in terms of geography, where sharks might attack. And I was I was consciously aware that I have, you know, predestined bias of where I think sharks attack people like you. You clearly think they attack people in Dev- river, uh, rivers in Devon and off the coast of Exmouth. And I think they attack people in Australia. Um, So I looked into this a bit. It's fascinating. So you've got as early as 1623, you've got a Dutch navigator called Carsten Zoon, who remarks on on the the sheer quantity of sharks in Australia. The like unnatural monsters, he describes near Cape York in Queensland. Um, And then a few years later, still in the 17th century, you've got William Dampier. He's an English explorer, buccaneer. And he lands on the west coast of Australia and he actually christens his landfall Shark Bay in 1699. So from the very earliest times you've got very clear descriptions. Remember these people are not producing endless amounts of written material talking about their experiences. There actually is not very much. And sharks appear um, proudly in them. And you can actually trace this right up to the 1960s which I think is fascinating. So Here, December 1967, you've got this Prime Minister of Australia called Harold Holt, who disappears in the sea near Portsea in Victoria. It just vanishes. And there's a huge search operation going on. No one ever finds the body, and he's presumed to have died. The explanations for how he died is really, really interesting. So the foreign press all think he's taken by a shark. There are people writing in uh, in France, in the UK, in America about Harold Holt being attacked by sharks. But the Australians don't think he's been taken by a shark. And they um, have a much more rational explanations about it being uh, just an accident. And then they have this raft of amazingly crazy explanations as well that he was assassinated by the CIA because he refused to. It's during the um, Vietnam War. And he refusing to pull Australia out of Vietnam. There are others who claim he was a spy for China and that he was take Chinese frogmen. Uh, took him from under the water, gave him some oxygen and put him in a Chinese submarine. Off they went. But the relationship between uh, the the explanation as a shark attack and all of these other amazing, crazy explanations for his death, I think is fascinating. So if you've got time, everyone, do look at the disappearance of Harold Holt in December 1967 and think about it in terms of how um, Europeans were describing Australia in 1623.
2: Excellent. Excellent.
1: Uh, Guys, we've already done half an hour on Sharks. The time has absolutely flown by. Very enjoyable indeed. I think what we're going to do is stop here. We're going to split this podcast into two. We're going to do Sharks Part 2 for you coming up very soon. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do get in touch with us with your um, stories of the fear of sharks and where you think sharks are lurking. Uh, Wonderful stuff. Do follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis.
2: And I am at James Daybell. And the pod is at unexpected odd.
1: Absolutely. Please check out everything we've got on histories of the unexpected.com. Listen to our back catalogue. If you're a kid, do listen to our homeschooling series. We're very proud of that. Uh, and it'll help you understand the past and maybe think about it in different ways. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll come back to you with Sharks 2 really soon. Bye.
2: Bye, guys.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Adwanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering, called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader, from AdWanted UK.